We are I. I still can't get over that that voice. Like out of all the voices that they could have dubbed on to like recording in progress, you think it could have been something just a little bit more appealing than that, eh? Yeah, I know. It's weird. Yeah. It's definitely right. automated. Yeah, very automated. Very like like uh, like techie sounding, just like robotic sounding. Mm. Um morning routine. Well, I guess I should say welcome. Thank you for coming out. I always forget to get through all the pleasantries before I hit record. But uh, thank you again for taking your time out to always sit down and discuss all these subjects with me. I really appreciate it's it. It's my pleasure. You're welcome. Yeah. Uh, morning routine. Like, I know this is something that I prioritize like heavily in my life. I mean, I know there's a, like a lot of um, a lot of people do who typically are like higher functioning or people who are trying to like achieve something in their life, like whether that be balance in their life or, you know, like whether it be like, you know, professional success or personal success. It seems like a morning routine is like a real standard part of that protocol. Um, like, why is that from a, a TCM or like an Eastern or Ayurveda standpoint? Because you're really setting the, the um, stage for the rest of the day in the morning. So you want to start off with an even keeled nervous system, let your body know that it can, it can know what to expect. So Do you have like, a morning routine that you, that you set for yourself? I try. It changes when Calliope's schedule changes or, you know, like we just went away and it changed a bit, but, um, yeah, I do try to, um, do at least meditate in the morning when I first wake up, um, before I do anything. And then I do the tongue scraping and, um, drinking water. And sometimes I'll do a little yoga practice then, but not always. Um, but I do set the intention and in, like the intention is there in the morning to uh, well, try to wake up at the same time every day, for example. But the intention is there to, to make the day, you know, the best that it can be peaceful, make myself centered, regardless of whatever, you know, dreams I may have had the night before or not, or anything else. Do you like, what are some of the benefits that you feel like the rest of your day when you like, when you prioritize your morning routine or just when you have like a really good morning routine set and, you know, like you're three, four, five, six weeks, three, four, five months into it. Like, like, what does that mean to the rest of your day? I feel like it definitely helps me to be more conscious of my reactivity, um, to be more conscious in general of keeping a good pace to the rest of the day, not putting too many things on my plate. Yeah. You feel like more focused or, you know, just more like in tune with your day or, or more sure, like about your day? Yeah, because I feel like I've taken that time for myself in the morning. So if I may not get that time later in the day, at least I had it, you know, and, 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 having the time is one thing, but prioritizing yourself to take that time 
is something else. And, and by doing that, that in itself is very satisfying. Yeah, see, and the one part that I find interesting about morning routines when people struggle with like getting up earlier, you know, maybe carving out that, you know, half an hour, hour, two hours, like whatever that may be, like in the morning for them to be able to set their morning routine. But people are so willing to be able to really kind of toxify their evening, you know, whether it's like, you know, drink more, watch more TV, eat more crappy food, play more on like social media and all that kind of stuff. It seems like that's really acceptable, but like on the flip side of that, getting up a little bit earlier in the morning, you know, instead it maybe help negate doing some of those bad habits before bed that are really going to interrupt and affect our sleep anyway, you know, but like, you know, it, it's really hard for people to, you know, kind of flip the way they, they perceive that and saying like, I'm going to sacrifice some of my evening to be able to gain some morning. Um, is that something that you've found like working with clients and stuff over the years? Well, I encourage people to get up earlier and go to bed earlier and stop eating earlier in the day, because according to the biological clock, according to the most recent scientific um, insight into the microbiome and into circadian rhythms, to do that is more beneficial for our bodies because it's what we have done kind of unconsciously since for a very long time. Um, we've, you know, lived according to the sun cycle and the moon cycle. And so when we don't do that now, our bodies are just so programmed to work optimally from early in the morning till the afternoon that if we don't take advantage of that, then we are actually contributing toward confusing our system and also to depleting ourselves in the long run. Yeah. Like I, you know, because like we create like these like artificial days and nights. Right. And, you know, like it's yeah. one of the things why they say, you know, like getting off like your devices or not watching like a lot of TV and stuff like that before base, like, you know, like tricking and confusing your body. Um, and I think we all can kind of feel that from like a sleep quality standpoint, or, you know, like if we're connected yeah. enough with ourselves, we can understand the sleep quality. How does that affect like our Chinese um, body clock, you know, because obviously there's different times of the day, you know, like when right. you know, like it affects like different words. Are we throwing not only like our circadian rhythm off, but are we throwing off like our, our kind of Chinese biological clock that we have ticking with inside of us in relationship to our Right, audience? yeah, because that completely lines up with the circadian clock completely. And so does the Ayurvedic body clock. So and like when you were talking about having an optimal morning routine and getting up a little bit earlier, I was thinking about kapha time. So kapha time is six to 10 in the morning. Kapha is the energy of sustainability and structure and holding. And so we wanna be up early in the morning before that sort of like heaviness kind of kicks in. So getting up by six o'clock is optimal because the closer you get to seven, the more deep into kapha time you're going to be. And since kapha is about stability and structure and sustainability, it has more of like a heavy energetic to it. So it's actually harder to get up. And then it's like harder to feel energized when you get up, if you don't wake up before six or seven. And then um, it sets the stage for more like mental fogginess and things like that throughout the day. 
Is that why people always feel more like productive in the morning? Like everybody that I know that gets up early always has like this real power burst mm-hmm. of productivity, you know, and that's why the reason why they typically start to get up earlier and earlier because it's just like you, you know, and I think a lot of people contribute that just to like uninterrupted time, but is, do you think it's a combination between like uninterrupted time and like, like that time is just actually allocated to us being our best and most productive? Yeah, Absolutely mentally and biologically we're just wired to function better at that time of day and that's why for example staunch meditators tibetan monks they'll get up at four in the morning or three in the morning and that's when they'll do their morning routine and that's when they'll do the majority of their rituals and meditation Um, because that time of day is more ripe for clarity of mind you think that like, you know, if we kind of like spin this clock back to like, you know, thousands of years ago, like there was a real need when we got up in the morning that we had to be productive because if we weren't productive in the morning, it probably led to a lot of detriment, like the rest of the day. Like, do you think that it kind of just like, this is a, an also an evolutionary standpoint where it's just like, Hey, get your ass out of bed. You're like, sure. The sun's up. We're going like, you need to go do some things or we're probably not going to live too many more of these days. If you're like super lazy all day, you know, like we need water, we need food, you know, we need shelter, we need protection. Right. We need to be able to do things. Do you think it's kind of like that biological switch that goes on in the morning that just has a real deep seated root and evolution? Absolutely. Absolutely. I do. And you know, like credit, like wolves and uh, tigers and things come out at night. And so it's better not to be like roaming around outside. It's better to be somewhere safe, hunkered down at that time. And with the circadian clock, um, uh, research that's been done recently, they found that the microbiome in the gut actually is more awake and more active at that time during the day than later in the day. Like, um, for example, in, in, uh, the Tibetan monasteries, they don't eat after like they, they stop eating around 12 o'clock in the afternoon for the day. And so Western research says, try not to eat after eight o'clock, but really if you want to take the middle of the road with that and, you know, take into account when we actually do get up maybe around six, seven for most people, then, um, stopping eating around five o'clock is optimal because otherwise it's like considered harming to the body. It's injuring um, to our vitality to eat later in the day because you're, you're putting something in your body that requires a lot of energy at a time when the body doesn't have the juice to, to manage it. You know, and it's, you brought up like a really good point. So I'm sure you've come across this lots. And I know a lot of, you know, professionals have, or, you know, like even um, people that have been sought for advice being like, like, when do I eat? How do I eat? How much do mm-hmm. I eat? And, and like, I've always said to people, I'm like, yeah, I'm the wrong person to ask because I'm like, this is a rabbit hole of just an, an education just so that people can come into it with their eyes a lot more wide open. It's like we said, mm-hmm. what time do you get up in the morning? You know, like, what's your activity level like during the day? You know, like, are you male, female? Like there's right. just, there's so many factors that come into play in this. Like, do you go drive for two hours or an hour sitting in your car and then sit for eight or 10 hours at a desk and then drive for an hour or two in your car? Or 
are you a construction worker who's, you know, pounding nails all day long, you know, like there's, or are you like a fitness professional that's teaching two or three, four or five classes in a day and lifting weights and moving around? Like, like, where are you like on this like spectrum? He said, it's like, you know, do you we don't, work nights? That, that too, right? You know, and it, or it's just like, you know, like what, what time are you stopping like in a day, like, you know, where it's like, yeah, it might be great to like, you know, not eat past four, but like, what if you still have hours worth of activity? What if you didn't start until two o'clock in the afternoon and you get off at 10 o'clock at night? Like, you know, like those kind of situations, like we've just mm-hmm. created this like super complex world of being able to try to figure out like how we work in, into that system. Um, you know, in such a short period of time that there's no way that these natural biological clocks inside of us, you know, have caught up. Um, do we, do we know like the impact that this has like on our, on our organ clock or, or, you know, Chinese biological clock in relationship to like time versus organ function? Like, you know, like, do we think that there might be any kind of direct link with like tumors or cancers or distress, um, you know, like in these organs when we're throwing off this natural circadian rhythm? You know, I don't know any specifics being linked to specific times or certain specific disease processes or organ systems. What I do know is that one of the primary things that a practitioner is going to address with someone who comes in with any of those disease processes manifesting is their lifestyle. That's going to be the primary thing. It's not like, okay, what herbs should we give you? It's like, okay, what are you doing? And what are you not doing? And then finding that harmony, there are certain things that are probably non-negotiable in certain situations. Some people may need to eat every couple of hours. Some people probably shouldn't snack. And so like finding out the way someone is living and what their environment is like is very important. And it always has been in Eastern medicine, knowing what the family life is like and you know, or do, do you have a dirt floor? Do you, or is your house filled with mold? Like all of these things are really important to know because they all play a role in the person's overall well-being. You know, like it, it just, I think like the more conversation I get in with people, and I know you and I have talked about this lots, but it's just, it's amazing how lifestyle is actually like a real pandemic that we just turn such a blind eye to. You know, it's, yeah. it's this real socially acceptable thing to have like a, a terrible lifestyle and just be okay with it. You know, like we just, we mm-hmm. know we can be told, you know, we can read and see and hear like all these things. But like at the end of the day, like it's just, we put no value in it. You know, like, why do you think that we get like, I, I want to believe that we as people feel inside of us that like what we're doing is wrong and we should be gravitating toward this other thing. But it's like, we get such pushback against it. Like, as a, mm-hmm. as a race of human beings, it's like, like, no, no, no. I want to stay up till two o'clock. No, no, no. I'm a night owl. No, no, no. You know, like right. I want to work 20 hours a day. No, no, no. I want to do cocaine and Adderall so I can be the best financial broker on wall street. You know, like, it's just like, we give such pushback in extreme ways towards actual lifestyle. You know, like, it's like, do you, I know I've asked you this hundred times, but like, you know, is there going to be a time? And this is such a great time for this to be able to happen when we make this fundamental shift, you know, like I'll ask you again for the hundredth time, like, do you see anybody like in, in your life or your clients or just like in your community, are people making more of a shift, um, you know, to being more balanced in their life now, like kind of getting to more post COVID or is everybody kind of sinking back into the same old, same old? 
Unfortunately, I'm seeing a lot of people sinking. There are reports that like there was a headline I saw today that 95% of people are considering quitting their jobs after I, all this. I was just told, yeah, I know. I just heard that like a few <laughs> days ago that there's this thing that's got like a hashtag and everything that was called the mass exodus or something. Yeah, yeah. Because there, so there obviously is a percentage of the population that is like, okay, what I was doing before is not sustainable. I'm not happy. This doesn't feel right. So that's huge. But I am seeing people getting, it's not to the point where we're COVID yet with most of the people I've interacted with, but I am seeing a lot of people as their jobs are requiring them to come back into the office or to travel again, that they're starting to get more stressed out with work and the demands on them are getting to where almost where they were before. And I'm watching it happen. And, you know, it's like, there has to be some change I feel in the work culture that is more supportive of our mental and emotional well-being. Because look, everything still, for the most part, everything was still operational. We didn't completely crash or shut down over the past year. So with less time in the office, with less running around and traveling and all of that, that people have to do, it still worked. And so can't there be some happy medium? And I feel like companies and corporations um, it would, it would be lovely if, you know, ideally they would take a look at that and make a shift for people so that everybody could be happier. And so that everybody, almost everybody isn't thinking of leaving their job because <laughs> 95% is a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. And, you know, like I even look at it too, where it's like, you know, a lot of these major corporations before were just finding ways to be able to make the work environment more appealing to be able to stay there. And Google was one of the, you know, places where I like, you know, you know, arcade games, basketball courts, huge beanbag chairs. And it's like, mm -hmm. all you're really mm -hmm. doing is just finding ways to be able to turn, um, you know, like the office into like an extension of your home, you know, mm -hmm. but like now people are just like, I actually have like all of this plus more at home. And like you said, like the wheels mm -hmm. didn't completely come off the bus. But it's amazing like right. how we're still like locked in and entrenched in that mentality from a corporate level. And obviously we know like corporate United States, corporate Canada, corporate world really drives what we're allowed air quotes to be able to do with our lives. And it's just, you know, mm -hmm. like you said, we need that, that fundamental shift from a, a corporate level, you know, saying like, you know, like, yeah, as long as you're getting done what you should be able to get done or what you need to get done in a day. Why does it actually matter where you geographically are? And I think a lot of people, right. like you said, have kind of woken up to that concept of being like, no, like I don't need to. And I can do what I could, you know, what took me eight hours to do before I can do in four or five and have this mm -hmm. greater quality of life so that I can start, you know, maybe waking up earlier and, you know, or even at the same time, but spending an hour having like a great morning routine and then having like, like this extra time to be able to enhance the quality of my life instead of just being chronically stressed out about how my life is just dominated by what has to go on at the office. Yeah. Yeah. Um, tongues. 
I know one of the first things that, you know, like that you probably ask everybody is like, let me see your tongue or you've said it a million times in your day. Um, and I know that there's kind of like an imprint. So maybe geographically, like on the tongue, you know, kind of walk us through what parts of the tongue represent the different organs in the body. And then we'll go right into tongue scraping and like what it is and its benefits and why people should be doing it. Okay. So the tongue is very di diagnostic in Eastern medicine. When we look at the tongue, we're looking at the quality and probes in the gut, but we're also looking for um, inflammation in the body and where that inflammation could potentially be. We're looking for any stagnation in the body and where that could be. And, and um, we do that by by observing coating and the tongue body underneath of them. The tongue coating largely represents the microbes in the gut. And if there is too much of a, um, an overgrowth of things that we don't necessarily want there. The tongue coating also indicates the amount of toxins in the body. So when we talk about toxins in Eastern medicine, we're not talking just about environmental toxins or man-made chemicals or off-gassed things. We're talking about also the byproduct of cellular metabolism that doesn't get eliminated efficiently, or we're talking about food that doesn't get digested all the way. So we look at the tongue coating to ascertain what's happening on that level of toxins slash microbial activity and population. And so the tongue coat should ideally be thin and white and coat most of the top of the tongue. And you should be able to see through the tongue body to recognize any irregularities in the tongue body. If the tongue coating is so thick, that you can't see through it to the color of the tongue, then that indicates that there are a lot of toxins in the body. And depending upon where that coating is indicates where they are. So if somebody has a pretty thick coating all over their tongue, like on the sides, on the tip, on the back, then that indicates that there's a problem with um, transforming and eliminating on a systemic level. If the tongue coating is just really thick, for example, toward the back, then that may indicate that there's an overgrowth of some sort of microbe that isn't getting crowded out by beneficial bacteria in the lower part of the GI tract. So usually in the large intestine. Um, the tongue body itself, ideally the tongue should, when someone sticks it out, look like it's the right size for their mouth and it should be completely smooth and it should shouldn't be, it shouldn't look wet. Like it just got sprayed with water and it shouldn't look dry. So it should be kind of, it should be kind of moist, but not wet. And it should be smooth without cracks or teeth marks on the edges. So when there are teeth marks on the edges of the tongue, that indicates that there's an issue with transformation and transportation of food and fluids through the body. And usually that indicates a malabsorption in the small intestine as a result. And, and that is usually brought on by excess stress and worry. The um, presence of cracks on the tongue 
indicates that there's a dryness in some part of the system and some part of the body. So like I mentioned, the back of the tongue is more um, representative of the lower part of the body and the front of the tongue of the top of the body. So head, chest, heart area, lungs, all toward the tip of the tongue. The middle of the tongue is, as you might imagine, has a lot to do with the stomach and the spleen and the pancreas, small intestine. The edges have to do with liver energy and um, more toward the back, the kidneys, and then the large intestine. And um, the underneath side of the tongue, when we look, there's two veins under the tongue. And those should not be overly distended or purple, or that indicates that there's blood stagnation in the body somewhere, that the circulation isn't operating as it should. There could be um, a mass present somewhere in the body. So uh, that purple color indicates blood stagnation. Sometimes people people's tongues will look purple. They might have a purple spot just somewhere on their tongue. And that indicates that wherever that is in the body, that there's stagnation present. Um, so there's a lot, I mean, that's just sort of the tip of the iceberg, very basic information about the tongue, but there's a lot that can be seen in the tongue. If the tongue is, the tongue should be like a pale pink color. If it's too pale, that means that there's blood deficiency and blood deficiency can mean that the person is anemic or prone to being anemic. It doesn't mean that they're already diagnosed with anemia, but what it can mean is that we can see as oriental medicine practitioners that there is a, a, a trend in that direction. So before the person becomes fully anemic, we may supplement with blood boosting products, foods, et cetera. Um, if the tongue is overly red, that indicates that there's excess inflammation in the body. Sometimes just one part of the tongue will be red. Um, and so, yeah, and if the tongue coating is, is um, thick and it's yellow or green or black, that indicates heat in the body. If it's just a white color that can either be cold or it can be, um, if it's the thin white coating that you can see through, see through, that can just be physiologically appropriate. And so we scrape the tongue in the morning. That's not a Chinese medicine thing. This is a, an Ayurvedic thing because we want to like overnight, your body does a lot of detoxing. And by scraping the tongue in the morning before you brush your teeth, you're scraping off all the bacteria and residue that accumulates in the mouth while you sleep. And it's a really excellent diagnostic tool because you can see how much phlegm or gunk you have accumulating in your body overnight by how your tongue scraping looks in the morning. So if you ate a really fatty or fried or a lot of cheese or something the night before for dinner, you're going to have more gunk on your tongue in the morning. If you have something that didn't digest well, if you're starting to come down with something, you may also have more gunk on your tongue in the morning. And so if you can see the gunk that comes off the tongue scraper, and think back and, and know that you didn't eat anything that would cause that, then you know that you need to take extra good care of yourself that day and maybe take some antimicrobials in order to boost your um, system. Like, and like, can you, what can you use to scrape your tongue? Like, I, I know there's like actual like tongue scrapers, but like, I like a, 
yeah, like I use a stainless steel tongue scraper. Um, copper is really nice because it's antimicrobial, but copper is also more difficult to maintain. You have to clean it and with like lime juice and stuff in order to um, clean off the patina that will naturally form. Um, I've seen plastic ones, the plastic ones over time, if they knock into something or toothbrush or whatever, they can like splinter a little bit and then it scratches you. So that's why I like the stainless steel. They hold up really well. They're easy to clean. Um, and it's different to use a tongue scraper than it is to brush your, your tongue with your toothbrush. So you're brushing it. You may brush some of it out, but it's still getting in the bristles of the toothbrush and it's kind of just getting moved around. Whereas if you scrape your tongue before you brush your teeth, you put the, the tongue scraper is usually in like a U shape and you hold the handles and you stick your tongue out, you put it toward the back of the tongue and you scrape forward, you stick your tongue out, you scrape the whatever comes off your tongue into the sink and rinse it. And you do that as many times as you need to until it gets to the point where there's only saliva on the tongue scraper, there isn't any gunk there. How hard do you like pull down on it or like, do you push you out don't it pull, on your you tongue? Don't, you don't press very hard at all. It shouldn't be uncomfortable at all. The most uncomfortable thing will be if someone has like a really sensitive gag reflux, reflex, they might have a problem with tongue scraping or they might not be able to go toward the back of their tongue as well. But sometimes if you do have a gag reflex from the scraping, that's actually a good thing because you're getting more phlegm up out of your um body yeah like and it's one of those things that i think that we just completely take for granted or like you know that in from a western culture perspective like we just don't even value like a tongue at all like we just kind of use it for talking and we use it for moving things around inside of our mouths but like it's just like tongue is completely useless like in our mind like we don't look at it as like a diagnostic that has like any kind of value and we only really notice it when we bite on it sometimes, you know what I mean? Like it just, we're right, right, never right. really taught to be able to like, you know, like, yeah, like I was in my thirties before I even like learned about tongue scraping, you know, like, and it's just one of those like, you know, interesting concepts to me that's just like, can be not only so beneficial to understand kind of what's going on in your body, but something that's so simple to do in the morning. And if we're taught to, yeah. you know, floss our teeth and brush our teeth, like why wouldn't, why did we lose tongue scraping along the way? Or why was tongue scraping never a part of that? You know, because it's all a part of like, you know, oral healthcare or all the times that we've ever been to the dentist or I've been to dentist, no dentist has ever told me about tongue scraping and they will tell you and they'll educate you about bacteria in your mouth. But it seems like a logical to me now for a dentist to bring up like, hey, you know, like we have this tongue scraper too. Do you ever scrape your tongue? But I've never heard a, a dentist say it at all. Um, right. You know, like, is it like, you, do you know that if there was ever at a point in time in Western culture where we did, or is it one of those things that just kind of got lost in translation when people started populating the West and coming up with all these Western ideologies? I'm not sure. I'm not sure that was ever part of the Western tradition. Um, oil pulling. I know in your first book, you kind of have like a routine set, you know, where you tongue scrape and they do oil pulling. Um, I know a lot of people, if some people may have heard of tongue scrape, I think it's a little bit more common than oil uh, pulling. So kind of walk us through oil pulling its origins, you know, why we do it and its importance. 
Yeah. So oil pulling is also an Ayurvedic practice. Oil usage in Ayurveda is um, highly prized and um, pretty regular uh, occurrence. Um, the Indians use a lot of oil and the reasons for that are many, but with oil pulling, the, the primary reason is that it helps to pull any ama or toxins out of the head. So we want to keep the brain and the eyes and the ears and the nose very healthy and nourished. And when you're doing oil pulling, you're swishing oil around your mouth for 20 minutes or up to 20 minutes, which if you can think about like swishing anything through your mouth for even five minutes, that's pretty tiring. For 20 minutes, you're swishing oil around and it's acting as kind of like a suction to pull gunk or ama or toxins out of the brain, out of the sinuses, out of the ears to keep everything healthy. So in Ayurveda, oil is used for longevity and sustainability and flexibility and maintaining strength of the body, anti-aging. So oil is a highly prized medicinal in Ayurvedic medicine. And in oil pulling, the, the, it turns out the good bacteria in the mouth loves sesame oil and sesame oil is what is recommended for oil pulling. So you would start with maybe half a teaspoon of sesame oil and only swishing it for two or three minutes. And then you work up, work up, work up to, you could do a couple of tablespoons for 20 minutes, but you want to use sesame oil because of the properties of sesame so in the United States, at least, I know that there's this like huge kick of oil pulling with uh, coconut oil and coconut oil is actually very cooling. Sesame oil is warming. So sesame oil will warm everything up, get things moving. Coconut oil is known to kind of congeal or congest the, the, the micro channels in the body. So while it may be working on some levels, it may be doing kind of an opposite thing on other levels. So if somebody doesn't like swishing with sesame oil because it feels too hot or they're, um, you know, inside their mouth gets irritated, then they shouldn't be oil pulling because it's only with sesame oil. That, that we recommend it in Ayurveda. And it can be some medicinal oils as well, but to straight up oil pull with just coconut oil isn't recommended. So that's one thing. So the microbes in the mouth actually get nourished by the sesame oil and the oil pulling, I found some studies that have shown that um, it actually does help with the microbial balance in the mouth. And we know that the microbes in the mouth seed the microbiome in the gut. And we also know the microbes in the mouth can get through into the brain and a byproduct of one of the microbes that gets into the brain creates the amyloid plaques in um, Alzheimer's disease. So the, the health of the mouth has, is really, really important. And like in India, they use um, there's like sticks that they use and nuts that they chew that are antiparasitic, antimicrobial. 
So even if they aren't oil pulling or scraping their tongue, you always see even the poorest people walking around chewing betel nut or picking at their teeth with these sticks that are antimicrobial. So it's like pervasive throughout the culture, this, this oral health issue. And um, the other thing with the oil is that it binds to fat soluble toxins. So we can use mouthwash to kill a lot of microbes in the, in the mouth, but that's not helping with fat soluble toxins. And this is the, this is part of the beef with um, most diets as well. Western diets is that you can fast or detox, but are you getting those fat soluble toxins that are only going to come out if they can bind to a fat? So Oil pulling helps to do that, helps to draw out those toxins from the whole uh, head and eliminate them through the mouth. And I've had, I have a couple of clients that do oil pulling on a regular basis, one of whom had severe long-standing sinus issues for years, like sinus infection after sinus infection and seasonal allergies. And since she's been oil pulling, her sinuses have been completely clear. That's astonishing. I have a, a friend of mine and he has, uh, his nose is just like chronically, you know, stuff like his sinuses are just really congested all the time. And um, mm-hmm. I know that he listens, you know, to the podcast regularly and that, that there'll be a huge value add for him. Yeah. Right yeah. And so like if, if someone oil pulls and it's, it's for some reason, if it's causing any problem for them, they should stop doing it because oil pulling is not recommended for everyone across the board in Ayurveda. That's the other thing, is that with certain conditions, you may not want to do oil pulling or the oil pulling may exacerbate the condition. So like if you have an abscess, you shouldn't be oil pulling, for example. So so that's something to take into account. So I encourage people that do try it to really pay attention to how they're feeling. And if they feel off, from doing it that they should stop and consult an Ayurvedic practitioner and and find out, you know, whether it's the detox part of it, that's making them feel off or if there's, or if they shouldn't be doing it for some reason, because, you know, their pitta is too high or whatever it might be. Um, So, yeah. And so then also with, um, since we're talking about the oil piece, there's another um, technique called nasya. So a lot of people have heard of neti or jala neti, and that means cleaning the, the nasal passages with water, um, with sal- salinated water. There's also a technique where you run a string through them, but- um, How do you get it from one side to the other? You can, you can you get, well, you actually swallow the string, you like put, you can put it in. It's like, you can, there's a lot of things that people do. You can swallow the string in the, like in the mornings at one of my yoga teachers in India, there was this like group of guys that were hardcore into Hatha yoga. And part of the like hardcore Hatha yoga practice is to get all the like phlegm out of your body, all the toxins out of your body you're trying to clear away any obstacles so that when the kundalini rises there there isn't a health issue or a mental issue that arises along 
So they, they try to clean themselves out. So in the mornings, they'll like swallow gauze and, and then pull it out. And they'll, that helps to get like, any like excess bile or whatever out of their stomach or any phlegm that they swallowed overnight out of their stomach so that it's not going through their body. And I don't honestly know how they get the string, but there's an oiling practice and that's called nausea practice. And so nausea is very clarifying for the sinuses and um, it can really, really, really make you feel very clear and alert. It's a really cool practice. And so what you do, I won't explain the entire details of it right here, but basically you put a couple of drops of oil in your nose and you sniff really hard and try to get it to go up. And then um, how you respond to the oil going into your sinuses is diagnostic, but it's also very purifying. It can either nourish if somebody's over Vata or it can, uh, can help to expel flat. And so um, that's a really interesting practice. And if somebody were to go, um, it's, it's usually a combination of oils, pretty much always there'll be sesame oil, sometimes a little castor oil, sometimes coconut, sometimes on uh, sunflower, but there'll be that particularly has different herbs cooked into it. It has a bunch of herbs cooked into it and they're used to help kind of brighten and enliven the mental faculties. And so if one were to go for Panchakarma, they might have nasya done to them. They might also have um, oil put in the eyes. We'll use ghee sometimes. Um, it depends what the formulation is based on the person, but they'll make a little, they'll take dough and they put like a dam, you're laying down on your back, they'll put a dam around your eyes. And then they, they put the ghee, basically you have your eye open and they like make a little swimming pool <laughs> around your eye and really? fill it with the ghee. Yeah. And depending upon what your eyes do in that process, if they turn red or if they, they may, may be more clear, whatever ends up happening, it's diagnostic and it helps to pull toxins out through the eyes even. So, yeah. Oh, that's Pretty just, cool. I, yeah, that's unbelievable. I get like skeptic anything with like the eyes when I listen to this old school Vietnamese woman when I was in my 20s when I had pink eye and she convinced me to put, um, you know, like a water salt solution like in my eye to get rid of pink eye saying that's what they did in like Vietnam and stuff. And I did it and like the salt didn't dissolve. Or like the sulcra said about my eye and it started it scratched my lens. I had to go oh, like yes. no. oh, it was like this horrible experience. But and my own stupidity for the but like you know, like old school Vietnamese woman who seemed like she knew what she was talking about. All this yeah, but they probably prepared the salt water in a very specific way. Yeah, yeah, pretty, you know yeah, what I mean? I'm sure. I'm sure it wasn't just like a few cracks in the things rolled no. around with the spoon. In no. your like, they probably yeah. boiled it first. So the water was sterile. You know what I mean? Like all yeah. this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the two of us that had pink eye, we never did it. We both ended up having to put like drops in our eyes for like two weeks because our lenses were all scratched. Yeah, it was, oh, it was no. brutal. But, but, uh, but yeah, like I just, I didn't, like I had no idea, you know, like, like what an interesting technique I would, I would love to be able to go through like all these processes with like a professional one day just to be like walk through just 
not only from like a diagnostic standpoint, but just, I'm really curious to see what they would feel like, you know, like even when you said like mm-hmm. getting like the oil, like in your sinuses and cleaning out your sinuses and just having like a brighter faculty, you're just like a lot more clear, mm-hmm. like it'd be really interesting to be able to, to try that in like oh, a setting yeah. and doing it properly. You would probably, with all of the stuff you do, you would probably feel like Superman after you did that. <laughs> oh, I, yeah, well, that's why I'm so interested. I'm just like, they just seem like some things that are like so easy to be able to like incorporate into your day. If you just are will a willing participant and wanting to do some like basic things, you know, like if I had like a little oil mm-hmm. thing, like I could easily just like power snort some oil and stuff like that and just kind of clean out and just see what happens and just kind of log what's going on and how it feels and stuff um the, those things just seem so easy to me because they don't take very long so when people would say well i don't have no. time to do it and i'm like well most of these things only take like not even a well minute. the oil in the nose takes a little while because you will like most likely there'll be like a period of about up to an hour where you can be like exposed rating it's it's quite a process but you know a lot of this can be done on a regular basis but it's always good to consult with someone who knows about it because as innocuous as it may seem if someone did nausea every single day it might actually be harmful to them or if they even did it once because for some reason you know they have some kind of an infection in their sinus cavity they didn't know about or whatever. And that's why it's important to do the tongue diagnosis and talk to the person and find out what they have going on. Like if somebody had um, a sinus infection, I wouldn't recommend that they do nausea, for example. I have a question for you, I guess, because we're kind of talking about like nose, respiratory, you know, like things. Like there's some mornings just because like I work out every morning and like I just always kind of have like a real awareness of like my body and like what's going on. And like before I used to have kind of like a set schedule of like, you know, I'm going to like lift weights, you know, maybe not like as prescribed as what it used to be like having like a day where I train this body part. And I really go by feel now, like today I know and I really wanted to go lift some weights this morning because I just really felt strong. And then I got to the gym and I only did cardio just like different, like Mm -hmm. I rode and I biked and I ran and I never even lifted one weight, didn't do like any other extra, but it's like, and that's how I tend to work out now is I just go by like what happens when I show up is what I do. But sometimes I have this like really dry feeling like in my lungs. And I always kind of like attribute it to like, I didn't drink enough water like the day before or something, but just like my throat's dry, my lungs feel dry. Like my whole chest cavity Mm -hmm. just feels like like the desert like it just in I like I have a really hard time breathing and my cardiovascular performance just plummets because of it um Hmm. like is that like have have you ever heard of anything like that when people have been doing like physical activity they've just have felt really dry like in the lungs and the chest I've heard people say things about like their throat and their um and their mouth and stuff but how long has it been going on for (laughs) Um, I to be honest like I don't even really can remember a time that it hasn't been going on it's just something that's always kind of I'm so does it make you cough at all no it's just it it makes breathing labored you know like I I push through it Mm -hmm. like it like but it's one of those things where 
to me, when I'm doing something, if I have to think about what I'm doing, it becomes so much more arduous, like the Mm -hmm. taxation on my mind and my body, like mentally, emotionally, physically skyrockets, because like, I can't get into like that, that happy place, your Zen place, you know, where you can kind of just do stuff. Like, you know, it's like when your legs feel heavy, when you're running, you think about Mm -hmm. every step, you know, like when you're feeling labored in the chest, you think about every breath and like, that's yeah. not what you want to be thinking about. You want to be like lucid dreaming about some great stuff. Like you don't want to be, you know, right. focusing on like what you're doing at hand, but like, like I'll breathe in. It doesn't feel like I can breathe as deep. Um, it uh-huh. feels like I very shallow breathe, you know, and it just feels really dry. Like, like, it's just like, there's no moisture in, in my lungs, like at all. Yeah. Well, that, that's like a yin deficiency. So for something like that, I would give like cooling moistening herbs yeah I always say it's not all the time and I don't I can't like isolate it to like what it like actually causes it but it's definitely do you know it when you get up in the morning or is it not something you recognize until you get to the gym usually like I'll notice it in the morning which I always used to think it was like well maybe I didn't get a good sleep the night before too or you know like maybe it was mornings when I woke up and I I like perspired lots of myself like my immune system is heavily taxed all night and I woke up and you know maybe the sheets are damp or my pajamas are wet you know because like yeah. I used to wake up like every morning and like my like I'd have to change the sheets in the mornings like my bed was just mm-hmm. soaked in um, you know, it was, I always contributed just cause like my immune system is so taxed all the time from all the activity that I do and stress and work and life and blah, 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 blah. Mm. It's not like that anymore. Um, but like, I used to think it was from things like that, but like now that mm-hmm. I've li- eliminated these other symptoms and then I still get it every once in a while, it's just like a, a like a real mystery of like why it kind of comes and goes, but uh, like, I'm, I'm sure it probably mm. has something to do with like relative, like sleep and like you know hydration stress levels and all that kind of stuff um well there's this stuff out now about breathing and not and and people taping their mouth shut so they don't mouth breathe at night have you heard about this yeah because in uh what's his name his uh who came out with the book breath um talking about that putting like a piece of tape like on your mouth Mm -hmm. and only breathing like through your through your nose and i think they have that, that contraption you put in your mouth to strengthen the muscles in your jaw and it's completely changing everybody's jaw structure. And like, they look like their faces, like you can clearly tell the people who use them regularly. Um, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. To be able to help keep your mouth shut. Cause they, they're saying, you know, like, I guess some of the theory behind it is like weak muscles, you know, like then it's like, you know, weak muscles in your jaw and your face. That's what's allowing, you know, like the mouth to open at night, you know, want the mouth to open. That's why people just put like that little piece of tape, but then some people mm-hmm. are taking it too far and taping their whole mouth shut. And even he says, it's like, you know, like a little, just a little piece of tape to help prevent it from opening. Um, but that's where it stems from because, you know, then he was on Joe Rogan's podcast reaching, you know, tens of millions of people <laughs> like talking about it and stuff, but it's become. Yeah, I know people that are taping their mouths completely shut. I've had a couple of clients come in and tell me they're doing that. Yeah. Yeah. That's really. Like but I was kind just like- thinking, yeah, go ahead. That's just where like the, the fad come from. I've actually never tried it. Um, ironically, the two things I've kind of done that are similar to that is when I was in my early twenties at like, you know, some of like my peak of fitness, um, I used to do cardio taping my mouth shut to force myself through the, to breathe like through my nose, because like I would become such a heavy mouth breather really quickly. I was just trying to like train my mind and being like, 
you know, we need something extreme to kind of help change this system. Cause like, I couldn't do it like organically on my own. Like I'd have to consciously think like every second, keep your mouth shut, keep your mouth shut, keep your mouth shut. Um, just to try to prolong that, like as long as I could. Um, but then I realized, you know, like very quickly that like anything else, well, I was doing it for, for performance, but performance is all in my mind. There's very little to do with my body. So like, if something is arbitrary is like having to like breathe maybe for another minute or two without opening my mouth. It, like there's, there's a lot of other things that I can do to train my mind to be stronger. That's going to supersede the benefit of like maybe that extra minute or two of like nose breathing, not mouth breathing. Um, Cause I actually personally don't find like it hinders my performance, any switching from like nose breathing to mouth breathing or anything along those lines, because like, like, I can push myself so far mentally. There's usually a lot of other things that happen, you know, first, like rowing, for example, like I can row so fast and so hard that I don't feel the impacts of it until I stop. And then when I stop and kind of the severity of the environment I just subjected myself to is so high. I'm so uncomfortable in my body. Like it's weird. I like stomp around with like a, like a chicken with its head cut off on the farm. Like, it's just like, there's nothing like my legs aren't comfortable. My arms aren't comfortable. Like my chest, like my head, like just nothing is comfortable. And like, I, it's like you're running around trying to escape your own physical body because you pushed yourself so hard. Everything is just so uncomfortable physically. Mm -hmm. And it usually lasts about like 30 seconds, but every time it happens, I always think in my mind, I'm like, this is the time when he went too far. Like, like, this is the time when the body's just like, I can't do this anymore. Um, and like, I that happened to me three times this morning in my workouts. I was specifically doing like these sprint rows on the rowing machine, but it's like, it's, uh, it's brutal. Like it, it's arguably like the worst situation that I ever put my body and my mind through. And like emotionally, like it's, it's actually a really emotionally taxing process because like the fear starts to kick in you know, and like just the fear plus being uncomfortable and just like, and you know, you're going to come out of it, but there's always that part of it that thinks like, is this the time where you don't? Um, so, you know, like I always find it funny when people do the things like taping their mail strikes, I think that there's like a substantial amount of other things that people could do that are arguably more beneficial than doing those kind of things, um, that are going to like improve their overall health and wellness. Yeah. Yeah, but it's yeah. it probably seems to them like an easy thing that they don't have to actually participate in that much. So that's the thing that they'll do. Yeah, and you know, and it is right. Like again, it's like taking that fat burning pill. It's like you know, what's the best mm-hmm. diet to be on? You know, like what are all these things that yeah. I can do? And it's just like, well, if I can put a piece of tape on my mouth when I sleep instead of maybe meditating for twenty minutes before bed you know, like mm-hmm. I would arguably say that meditating for five or 10 minutes, you know, maybe like two minutes before bed is going to be better getting in that routine than taping your mouth shut during the night. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, Garshana. So Garshana is, um, taking, we do that in our culture to some extent with loofahs. So, okay. right. So like in the shower, we'll use a loofah to scrub off the dead skin cells. But Garshana is a specific process and it use, utilizes spe- specific materials. I'm just gonna shut the door. There's somebody moving something outside 
and it's really loud. Um, so Garshana is using a silk set of silk gloves, raw silk gloves, and dry rubbing the skin before you get in the shower or the bath. So you don't do it when the skin's wet, you do it when the skin's dry. It's called dry brushing. And it's done in strokes toward the heart. And it's done, so like you'd go from your fingertips and you'd go from your toes up. And um, there are a couple of reasons for it. It helps to stimulate lymphatic circulation. It helps to reduce kapha or excess heaviness in the body. Some people say it helps to reduce cellulite that I don't know about. Um, but the actual, there's an, there's an electromagnetic or some other kind of charge that is established between when you're dry rubbing with the silk that you don't get with other materials. Okay. And so for that reason, it's, so you're, you know, you're getting rid of the dead skin cells, you're increasing circulation but you're also, also increasing lymphatic circulation. So it's another way to help the body to eliminate toxins more readily. And then like silk's not very coarse or fibrous. Like, is that the whole point of why you'd want to use silk is because it's so gentle it's, on the skin? It's wild silk. So it's, oh. there is some fibrousness to it. So you do feel oh. it, it's not soft feeling. But it's also not harsh like a loofah or, or some other type of like a brush or something like that. And you wouldn't want to use a, a brush. You wouldn't want to like it. You would. You want like, to do the silk, the silk gloves. Yep. To get the. Full yeah, I feel like those. It. Yeah, and I feel like those little things like that are the things that get lost in translation to like all of us too. Or it's like you know, think about like dry brushing or you know, they just like oh well, if it could be silk, it could be anything. Or you know, people probably heard it. And they just think of dry brushing and then it has nothing to do with like silk at all. Like it could, you know, maybe even just using an actual brush or like a scrub brush or who knows. Like I, I'm, I'm sure that those are, well, I do know that those are the things that always kind of get lost in translation along the way. And yeah. people just kind of use anything. And it's like, you can see why yeah. like the effectiveness of them goes way down when we're not even using the proper tools for the job. And, and also not, doing the brushing in the direction of the lymphatic circulation yeah even like talking about like with like a lot of people i talk about um in regards to like massage and like really focusing and understanding which way the muscle fibers run you know and like mm -hmm. just having like an understanding of that and like relationship to massage and stuff like that too it's like you know mm -hmm. people typically think it's just like here's these hands here's this body any way that i move these hands on this body is fine you know, but like you said, like there's some like key things that we can do to make this experience like a lot more beneficial for people and you're not even potentially harmful either. Right. Exactly. Yeah. What's that other one that I couldn't quite say? And I'm not getting down the recording. Yeah. Why the B? Like obviously it's silent. You kind of just go A H Y. No, it's Abianga. Oh, Abianga. Abianga. Yeah, so yeah. The, See, you said it. So is the H silent then? Abiyanga? Yes. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, I always put the H in the wrong place. I or at least I think I do. I always have to double check that one. I'm a little dyslexic with it. <laughs> I know there's an H in there, but I can't always remember if it's in the beginning or the end. Um, it almost sounds like e, yeah. It almost sounds like it's like um, E B I Abiyanga. So it's almost like the H is mm -hmm. an I. Oh, okay. 
There should be yeah. like little like disclaimer, like little like breakdowns like underneath things. Cause when I look at some of these like words, phonetic I'm spellings. Like, yeah, I'm like, there's no way. Like I'm not even gonna like attempt this. <laughs> but um what 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 is it? Fill me in. So Abianga is basically self-oil massage. So again, you would most likely be using sesame oil. Um, there are other oils you could get through an Ayurvedic distributor. You can get vata oil, pitta oil, kapha oil, depending upon which dosha is most problematic for you. But um, Abhyanga is basically doing self-oil massage and it's an entire process. So a lot of times people will come in and they'll say that they're doing Abhyanga and I ask when they do it and they say, oh, well, I put the oil on after I get out of the shower and there's an entire process to it. And it happens before you get in the shower. <laughs> so you could um, dry brush first and then you take the oil that you're going to use and you put it in hot water in this, like I put it in a bowl of hot, I put the whole container in a bowl of hot water in the sink and warm the oil up because you don't want to put cold oil on your skin. It, it, it's much more, uh, it absorbs better and it doesn't clog the channels if you put it on warm because your body's warm. So you don't want to put something cold right on you. So you take, you can put a towel down on the floor so that you have something to stick because you're going to have a lot of oil on you. And then you put the oil on, you start massaging again in strokes toward the heart, like you did with the Garshana. And you put the oil on until your skin absorbs it. And then you keep putting it on and you keep putting it on. You put, you put so much oil. I take the bottle, I pour it over my head. You massage it into your scalp. Oh yeah. You massage it into your scalp, your ears, put it up in your nose. You get it everywhere you can reach. And then you wrap up in something so that you're warm and you leave it on for 20 minutes. And it's like a hug for your nervous system. The oil gets in the pores and it gets like around the nerve endings and it completely settles down your nervous system. The, the, one of the main properties of oil is its holding function. And so just like a hug, it's like what it's doing to you energetically. And so then you leave the oil on for that long because you also want the oil to bind to fat soluble toxins in and just underneath the skin. So that when you get in the shower or the hot bath, what ends up happening is you try and put as much of the oil, um, I'm sorry, you try and make the, the water as hot as you possibly can. You know, like when you take a really hot bath or shower and you start sweating a little bit and it feels kind of icky because you're trying to get clean, but you end up feeling too hot. You want to do that to yourself. So what happens is the oil's in your pores and then you make the water really hot and steamy so that your body just does a slight sweat. So it pushes out any of the um, toxins soaked in oil. And then you use the hot water to slough the oil off your skin. You don't use soap because it continues, your body continues to process the oil after you get out of the shower. You don't want to wash it out of your pores. Part of it is that you want some of the oil to stay because it makes your joints and your muscles very supple and very strong when you do it repeatedly. And um, 
So you, you just basically slough it off. I've had people uh, just wear it to bed overnight in their hair. Like you cover your pillow up with something or, um, you know, put like a hairnet sort of thing, a cap on. And it's really like, I've seen it thicken and makes people's hair look so much more lustrous. And um, I've had some students who have done the oil massage for weeks at a time. And I've seen their yoga practice, like their change by leaps and bounds, the quality of their skin improves, the eyes have more of a shine to them. It, it has such an all encompassing positive effect on the system. Now there are instances where you don't want to do it. Like if you're having some kind of a skin outbreak or a rash, you don't want to be doing it because you don't want to spread it. Um, if you're pregnant, you don't want to necessarily do it because you don't want to put your body through that temperature change. And you don't want to be doing things that are detoxifying um, when you're pregnant. So there are different reasons why you may not want to do it, but overall it's a pretty benign practice. And, um, I encourage everybody that it is indicated for to try it. Um, would it be beneficial to do it and then sit in a sauna? Um, the thing with the sauna and the oil is that you, you do, yes, it would be beneficial to sit in the sauna, but you don't want your head to get hot. Yeah. Okay. How come you don't want your head to get hot? Because that increases the, because it increases pitta, it can be agitating. And so, yeah. So like in Ayurveda, they have sauna boxes that you sit in and they close around you and your head is out of the, out of the heat. Really? That's cool. Yeah, it's a sweating have, therapy. Yeah, I guess they have those, um, the version of them now are those, um, those sauna bags. You basically like sit in it and it's like a sleeping bag that you like zip up and it's like a, a sauna that you sit in. You can like lay on your couch and they're just like you full of sweat like afterwards and stuff, but it's very similar. But instead of like a box, yeah. it, it's a bag. But um, so if yep. you were to do that, like it'd just be like, as long as the head doesn't get hot, you go in the, the shower or, you know, like the, the bath simply just so they can keep your head out of the water, but you want the rest of the body immersed in as warm as possible. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. I mean, I have to give that a try. I'm like super interested um, to be able to see how that feels, especially for like the the pliability in the in the muscles, the joints, the tens, the ligaments and stuff, because like I would assume that that would be incredibly beneficial to athletes. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't sit in the sauna with the oil on for the 20 minutes or anything like that, though. Yeah. I would keep the sweating separate. I would keep the sweating separate. Um, well, I guess this would be because like, I know one thing that's getting really popular now, and I think we, we talked about this before one time too, is um, like cupping and like, you know, like there's getting mm -hmm. to be like a growing kind of trend with, with professional athletes in, in doing cupping. Um, you know, like when is a good time? Like, what are people looking for? A lot of people have actually asked me this question lately is like, you know, should I go for cupping? And I'm like, you know what? I'm like, to be honest with you, I, I don't even really know what to look for 
is like a sign or like what is something that you'd be looking for like when that therapy would be appropriate versus when it's just kind of getting sold to you when you walk in the door yeah um well i would do cupping if there's a lot of muscle stagnation like there's a lot of somebody has a lot of stagnation they have a lot of tension a lot of soreness their muscles are really tight i'll do cupping if somebody has an acute rest like lung thing going on i'll do cupping um people with asthma so any i i tend to do most i do most of my cupping on the back there are practitioners that just do cupping and they do it all over the body so it can be done that way um one of my friends who's a massage therapist does a lot of cupping like that she'll do the legs the feet um but from more of a chinese medical perspective i'll do it for like and the, mostly for the musculoskeletal tension that gets trapped in the back, especially in the trapezius area, um, and for any kind of lung condition. And then I'll also do it sometimes there's bleeding and cupping. Uh, so it's, it's uh, where you take a lancet and you prick a point and then you put the cup on it and it sucks the blood out. Um, and I'll do that. Like there's a point on the back of the knees for if somebody has acute low back pain, like if they herniated a disc or something like that, then um, that's a good procedure to do for that. Yeah. What are, what are some of the benefits or like, how would you know, like when you would use the lancet to be able to draw the, the blood out versus just doing regular cupping? Oh, if somebody comes in with like a herniated disc or they've got like an acute muscle spasm in their low back. Mm -hmm. then I would do it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, again, it's like one of those things it's, you know, I think because people are starting to see it, like, you know, especially like on professional athletes, you know, in a lot of like Olympic uh, athletes and stuff, you like starting to see those cupping marks, like on their body. Yeah. Like, they're becoming more interested in it. And it's like, anything. it's just like the taping in the mouth or like the skin brushing or, you know, anything along those lines where it's like, you just see these opportunities for people to be able to make money from it. But it's just like always being able to like educate people on like, you know, like the things so for like why you'd want to be doing it versus it just like something fun to be able to try because we keep hearing it or seeing about it. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. It's become very trendy and um, it's a, you know, once you get cupped, you're not supposed to have a like wind blowing on your back. So like you want to go for cupping in the summertime, don't get on on a boat for two days afterwards. Don't sit in front of a fan or an AC unit with it blowing on your back. This fun thing. And then um, it can be depleting for some people at certain times. Um, like if, if a woman comes in and she's got, you know, she's in her cycle and it's really heavy. I, I don't necessarily just want to run and cup her because it's, it's one more thing her body has to deal with while it's already processing that, or if somebody's energy is very low for some reason, um, sometimes I won't cup them, even if it's somebody I would normally work with. But again, it, it goes down, to, it goes into the lifestyle piece too. So like with athletes, they may have the lactic acid buildup and they, you know, professional athletes, it's one more tool in the toolbox, but with people that are just like doing, you know, like th they're not stretching, they're not taking an Epsom salt bath, you know, they just want to come in and do the cupping. It's like, I, I, I don't mind doing it, but I also want to encourage them 
to practice optimal self-care in between those sessions so that, you know, the stagnation isn't so bad in the tissue. And, and also the cupping marks are diagnostic for how much stagnation is there. Like they're different colors. They may puff up. They may show you how depleted a person is blood and chi wise, how much stagnation they have, how much heat or inflammation they have. So it's, it's interesting diagnostically as well. And like optimally, if somebody's coming in for cupping on a regular basis for an acute issue, eventually their body should not accumulate so much stagnation. You know, if they're consistent with the therapy, it should get to the point where they might have a little redness where the cups were um, for, you know, the duration of the treatment, maybe a little few minutes afterwards, but then it should, they should be able to go to the massage therapist and they shouldn't be able to see any cupping marks. Like, Which is interesting really because it's like, you want to have happen. yeah, like we always see just like these really like dark purple red cut marks on people's bodies and so I've been mm-hmm. like, you know, and most people are just looking at that as like a sign of like successful cupping. It's like, working out and you feel sore the next day it's like that's my sign of a good workout is that I felt sore the next day and it's you know like you know again we're not even like we don't even know enough about it to even look at like what we're actually trying to be able to look for or like you know like what I always say to people I'm like you know say cupping as we're talking about it like what's the point of only going and doing cupping once you know again like you said if you're not going to have an Epsom salts bath you're not going to stretch you're not going to you know, have a nice warm bath, you know, you're not going to do, you know, go on the roller, use a Theragun or a TENS machine, you know, or something to be able to help with like your self-care model. Like what, why even do it? You know, even if you just want to try it or go for the experience, like you're not doing a whole lot for your body because, you know, you'll go back in a month and you'll have exactly the same result. And if we're not doing something in between that, or even looking at hopping on a regular protocol, like why even start it? Right. Yeah. Um, Moxie Bustion. So again, there are practitioners who only do Moxa. So Moxibustion and, and then Moxa is short for Moxibustion. So Moxibustion involves the burning of mugwort over acupuncture points and it comes in different formats. So a Japanese style practitioner will get like a whole bunch of dried mugwort and it's like fluffy and puffy and they take a little piece and they roll it like a little rice grain and then they put it directly on the skin and they light it on fire oftentimes there'll be a salve they apply to the point first just to protect the skin from the heat but they'll light it on fire and then let it burn down and just as it's touching the skin they pinch it off with their fingers so it doesn't burn but um the Japanese military used to use moxa to um, actually stimulate the immune system and boost the white blood cell count in the, in the soldiers, but they would burn it right on the skin. So when you burn the skin, that's what happens. And um, moxa is used to tonify the yang chi in Chinese medicine. So when someone's super depleted, like if they're very, if their vitality is super low and they're really fatigued and they're not able to digest things really well and they're bloated a lot, we'll oftentimes do moxa on the belly. And there's a source point for like where your dantian is, that area, that 
that low belly area. Um, and we'll do moxa over that area. So moxa can come as loose moxa, like I described, that is made into a, a rice grain and placed on the skin. It can be loose moxa you make into a little puff ball and you stick it on the end of a acupuncture needle that's been inserted and you light the moxa and the heat travels down through the needle into the point. Um, it can be used as a stick. So there are different kinds of sticks you can get. There are different apparatus that you can get to administer moxa through a stick, like little tools and stuff. But essentially it's like, if you get what's called smokeless moxa, it comes as like a compressed charcoal stick, it looks like. And you heat the, you light the end of it and then it turns into just like an ember and you hold that heat against just close enough to the skin so that the person feels the heat from it and then you pull it off and then you can get it closer and then pull it off until there's like a redness around the point. Um, it can be used to, uh, oh, it also comes in a uh, smoke variety so that it's like that loose moxa that's compressed and wrapped into a hard stick, sort of like a cigar. And so that creates a lot of smoke when you light it um, and use it over the points. Um, some people make moxa sprays now for people that can't handle the, the, the breathing of the smoke. Um, and it's also used for um, turning a, a breech baby. There's a point at the end of the pinky toe where if the baby is not so big that it can't turn, the baby will turn. And you have to do the moxa on both sides for at least 20 minutes at a time. And then within, well, sometimes it'll happen the first time. Sometimes it can take a few days, but usually the baby will turn. Wow, that's interesting. See, it's the, uh, things like that, like how on earth would it, anybody ever figured that out? Like I it's know. just mind boggling to me that at one point in time, you know, through like enough experimentation or, you know, maybe some things are just a little bit dumb luck sometimes, but like, like how, like you think systematically, maybe this is just my logical brain, you know, but like you'd have to do just the big toe on one foot. And then you'd have to do like, just like the next toe, the next one, then you'd have to try the other foot and then you'd have to combine them together. And then it'd be like big toe plus pinky. Like there's just like the combinations are not endless, but there's just so many combinations to try and you'd need to have a breech baby for all of them and then see and like hopefully that it even <sighs> works like that just stuff like that just blows my mind that that's where yeah. we were at one point in time with figuring us out biologically and I feel like we're so far away from that now oh, no. yeah like it's mind like yeah things that it just blow my mind but um tapping mm -hmm. so tapping is I look at tapping as a version of Qigong practice because the, the Qigong master that I studied with, um, one of his primary Qigong practices was a tapping practice called Fire Dragon Qigong. It's Master Yuan Ming Zhang. And um, it's all tapping. It's meridian tapping. And so you tap the meridians to you're loosening up the connective tissue and you're getting the chi to flow better. And 
releasing any blockages in the flow of chi, at least superficially on the body, the back, the front, the sides, the arms, the legs, the face, the head, everything. And um, by doing that, you're essentially preventing the onset of any disease process because, or at least that's the intention, because a blockage in the flow of the, of the smooth flow of chi through the body is the foundation for any imbalance to arise. So, um, so that's where, you know, I think, <clears throat> excuse me, I think the tapping came from was passed down through Qigong type practices. And then it got to somebody who systematized it in a certain way, and then it became the next best thing. So it's very popular. I'm glad that it is. It, I've, Hurt, talk to many people that it works for. I just stick with the fire dragon qigong because that's what I know, and I know how I feel after I do it. That's uh, yeah, you know. And again, this is where I kind of get into like this rabbit hole too, where there's just so many things that I want to try, and you know, so many things I love to be a part of my regular like protocols and stuff. But like, is there ever a point where like we just do like too many things, or like? Like, what would be the frequency? Like, like say it in a perfect world, like we've talked about, like, you know, what, like uh, two, four, say like eight, nine things so far. Like, like, is everything different? Like, you know, you might have like your, your everyday protocol for the tongue scraping, you know, but you might have like your, you know, like once a month cupping after you get on the right track and, you know, your oil pulling you do every couple of days. Like, is there, is there like a, appointed diminishing returns where we're just doing like too much or like are these strategies all just really good protocols to implement all the time well the way you just described it i don't think that's too much but if you're doing all that stuff every day and going for a massage and going for acupuncture and going to the chiropractor you know, like a couple of times a week, then it, then it can become too much because you're just doing, you're moving, you're moving, you're moving, you're moving, you know, it's too much moving like anything. We can overthink, we can overwork, we can overexercise, we can overeat, we can over anything. And so, yeah, it's about, I think, finding a balance with all that stuff, <clears throat> recognizing what we need to stay balanced and then sticking with that. Uh, we have one last one on our list here. Do you remember which one it was? Because I, I didn't pronounce gua it right. Gua Sha. Gua Sha. So Gua Sha is kind of like cupping, only it's the reverse. So with cupping, you're creating a vacuum and it sucks the tissue up into the bulbous cup. And then when it releases, it pulls out stuff from the deeper tissues. Um as it's getting, as it sucks the fluid up. And so then when you release the cup, then the body can take that circulation, that stuff that gets stuck and, and, and circulate it out from the area. So with gua sha, you're pressing. So you're taking, they used to use like a, a water buffalo horn and you basically, you scrape, you scrape an area. So I might use gua sha for tight muscles. It, it releases a lot of stuff from your body and it's much more harsh, both the 
experience when, when you have it and the after effects when your body has to detoxify all the gunk that comes out is much more harsh from my perspective than the cupping is. Um, the gua sha, like if somebody's doing like full on gua sha on you, you don't want to have it done more than twice a year. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so with gua, gua sha, basically it means sand. Sha means sand. And so you take the implement that you're going to use. Like I'll use a Chinese soup spoon. You could use water buffalo horn. They have all kinds of tools you can buy now. But you basically you scrape. It means it's scraping. And then you get little like, you get little red dots and your skin turns all red. It can turn purple. And the red dots are called are the sand. That's what they're talking about when they see the sand, say sand with the shot. So it's scraping and then you have the sand come up and the sand is like the toxins or the gunk that comes out of the tissue. It breaks apart adhesions in the tissue. Um, you might want to do it like if you're just starting to come down with something like a cough or get a tinge of a sore throat. If you do gua sha, it opens the, the whole back of the body. It opens all the pores on the back. So it will really help to um, vent that pathogen out through the skin so it doesn't go deeper into the body. But you have to catch it right in the beginning. Um, or you can use it on an area that has a lot of stagnation that's really tight or there's there might be some adhesions in the tissue um, that you can't access any other way. So you use the gua sha and you start kind of superficially. And then as the tissue softens, you go deeper and press harder and harder and harder. And it's to the point where the person has to breathe because it can get really painful. And then, um, and then you need to not do it again for a couple of months. But there are a lot of therapists, even in this town where I live, that massage therapists that'll take a course in it or whatever. And then they'll say they're doing gua sha and the client will come to me and they'll have like a patch like that big, uh, or they'll have just like their forearm they did or something like that. And they'll do it every single time they go. And I'm like, eh, I wouldn't do that over and over and over again. It, or it won't be really dark. Like full on gua sha is like pretty hideous to look at. It's like, imagine those big cupping marks, but it's like an entire muscle from top yeah. to bottom yeah and we see like it's like a um <laughs> where like in say where i've seen that like you like before is like in the bodybuilding community where they do the um the, like the fascial release so they have like they're like little stainless steel tools which basically the same thing and they're just yeah. scraping along like the tissue yeah. and it's like you know like it like it's brutal like i i've seen some people have been like worked on in my day where like like it's brutal especially the quads you know, like just getting like into the oh, yeah. just like, you know, IT like bands. Yeah. Just like, oh, it, like it just looks so painful. So, yeah. I mean, it's just, but like the one thing that like, I'll say from like strictly like an aesthetic standpoint, nothing makes your, like when you're lean and you get like some, like, you know, these like festival scraped or like wash out that it's it like aesthetically completely changes your body. Like it's the weirdest thing. Like you can, mm. you could take a picture of somebody's body, you know, that's never had it done to them before and go through like a real intense, like grounded, especially like on their legs. A lot of bodybuilders do it on their legs and it just like completely changes like what they look like. Um, and just like the, mm. like the tone, the depth of their muscle, like the shape of the muscle, it's the, 
the oddest thing, but, um, I, really I know, cool. yeah, I know a, a woman, um, used to be a client of mine and like, she used to get it done. And I had, didn't know at all until you just said it's now, but like, she used to go like every couple weeks and just get like, you know, pretty much like, you know, her lower body done. And then her upper body kind of rotate between that before oh, each man. show that she did. And she would do two or three shows a year. So she probably would get it done. Like I would have to say the 10, 12, 15 times a year, you know, for That's years. That's a lot. But if she had an experienced Chinese practitioner, maybe they knew that she could handle it because of what she was doing. That could be the case. And it but wasn't for the, I, for the I most know, part. Yeah. This was just, you know, kind of like, and not discrediting the person that she went to, but it was just more like her, um, like kind of like your RMT that kind of was also into like bodybuilding who knew about like a, a technique to kind of help make your, and like, they just looked at as just doing this like myofascial release technique to be able to, you know, you know, help with, um, like, like blood flow and just help make your muscle bite. It was strictly for them, like an aesthetics thing. There was no depth to the conversation and people in that world, even if it's horrible for their body, like they'll just keep on doing things it's like, you know, bodybuilders taking steroids, right. Or, you know, especially like, yeah. you know, women pumping steroids in their body for a body. It's like, they know it's terrible for their body, but they're just anything to look better and anything to present better on stage and anything to be able to win that trophy. Um, they're willing to do so like you know even if she knew that it was terrible for her body she probably would have kept on doing it anyway um, or right. just if it was suggested that she didn't if it just if she knew or she was convinced in her mind it would make her show better on stage she would have done it anyway yeah yeah unfortunately okay, made... that's the case with a lot of things yeah oh 100 right i think this yeah. is one of the first times we've ever made it recording through, like, in progress sorry no problem I, was just I saying, have I, my I have my uh, meditation class. I have yeah. to run too. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> I'm no sorry. Problem. No problem. <laughs> I was yeah, trying we'll to log into that while we were finishing up. Okay. All right. <laughs> this okay. usually run. happen. Okay. Uh, awesome. Okay. Have a wonderful day. Thanks again. All right. Thank you. Thank you.